So Jason and I were talking the other day that, that there's something incredibly intimidating about preaching at this church, and it's not that the worship team is there staring you down the whole time. It's, it's that there are so many extremely well-educated people at this church, and we're like, if I make one wrong thing, like, there are people who have their doctorate degrees that are going to go, actually, no, that's wrong. Like, one, one time I, I miscalculated the price of gold, and Mike Jones, he knows how much gold costs, because that's the business that he's in, and he says, actually, the temple is worth way more than you said that it was in your sermon, and that's so cool, but it's also kind of intimidating. And so I work really hard when I'm studying the scriptures so that I can hopefully say the right thing. But today, I'm going to preach about something that I have no idea about. I'm completely clueless about what I'm going to preach about. Um, So my dad's here. I probably shouldn't say this. I'm sorry. Um, I skipped like half of my freshman biology classes. I hated that class. It was so boring, and my grade very much reflected that I skipped half of those classes. And so today I really wanted to preach about science. And so I went to a scientist that I know, which is Will Ellis. He's a doctor. He's taken a lot of science classes. And I'm assuming you went to those science classes. Yeah, yeah. So so I, I had lunch with Will this week. And I said, Will, I don't have any goal. I don't have any specific thing I want you to tell me. All I want you to do is blow my mind with science. And Will took about half a second, and he says, I, want, I, I know how I can blow your mind with science. The thing that blows my mind, Will said, is the size of an atom. He says the size of an atom is 100,000 times the size of the nucleus. Now, I've got a PowerPoint up here, so go to it so I don't screw this one up either. The nucleus is, I can't see that one. A clump of protons and neutrons, they're clumped together a certain number in the middle of an atom, and then surrounding that, orbiting in it, are a bunch of electrons. Okay, so that nucleus, let's say that this beach ball is a nucleus, but the atom is 100,000 times the size of this nucleus. And in between the nucleus and the edge of the atom is nothing. And so atoms are the building blocks that make up everything, yet they are almost completely nothing. Blew my mind, and we're not even halfway there yet. Let's put it in the scale. Let's pretend my beach ball is the nucleus of an atom. We're going to pretend this ball is the nucleus of an atom, and we're going to put this into scale. Let's go to the next slide. Here's a map of Albuquerque and the pin, because I love Google Maps. The pin is this beach ball. If this beach ball to scale was the nucleus the atom would go in all directions for nine miles, which is this next slide right here. That's the size of one atom if this was the nucleus. But the crazy part is not the size. It's that after this beach ball, and then when we get all the way to the Sandia Peak, there's really not that much there. And so Will said, if you're holding a steel bar, you can hold the steel, you can feel how cold it is, you are actually holding 99.9% nothing. That is so weird. But then Will said, I'm still not done. And what he proceeded to do was combine science, which I hate, with something that I hate even more, which is math. And he says, thanks to some guy that I, I can't pronounce the guy's name, he says, we have this formula for calculating how many atoms and molecules are in something. And so He said, we have a formula for figuring out how many atoms are in a milliliter of water. 
and thank you to Holden and his incredible acid reflux, I have a syringe that can take one milliliter of water. So I'm going to do that right now. Oops, that's 0.8. So this is one milliliter of water right here. That's it. Really didn't make a dent in my bottle of water that I'm going to need in a few minutes after sharing this story. But this is one milliliter of water. I could spill it on the carpet. It's probably not going to make that big of a stain. It's no big deal at all. And Will says we have a formula for figuring out how many H2O molecules, which is a, a clump of atoms, a clump of atoms, are in this one milliliter of water. Let's go two slides, I think. All right, no, back, back, back. Don't look at that one yet. Back, that one, okay. 6.022 times 10 to the 23rd divided by 18. Steve Crowder is crunching these numbers right now. What is it? A large number, <laughs> absolutely. So if you want to go, let's go to the next slide now. This is how many H2O molecules are in one milliliter of water. And the number is actually 33 sextillion, 400 quintillion molecules. But those molecules, each one is made up of an H, an H, and an O. So we multiply that by three, gives us the next number. And that is 100 sextillion, 200 quintillion atoms in a single milliliter of water. I thought that was going to be a lot more dramatic. That, that <laughs> wow, that was not that cool. All right. <laughs> That's how small a milliliter really is. Will blew my mind by showing me just how small things can be. But I'm a Star Trek fan. And I wanted to see just how big things could be. And so I started obsessing over all of these different Hubble photos, all of these different images that I could find, some BuzzFeed things, some cool videos on YouTube. And I found out that the universe is really big. The smallest unit we have for measuring is a light year. The, the, time, the, the distance that, it, that uh, the speed of light would take if it traveled for one year. And of course, everybody knows from memory, because we took it in high school, that the speed of light is 100, no, how much is it? I don't know. 186,000 miles per second. So one light year is 5.88 trillion miles across. And this is basically our ruler for measuring how big the universe is. We say how big the known universe is because we know that the universe now is still expanding. We talk about God creating. God is still creating. And that's what's so crazy about the universe. So I picked a constellation. And I said, I'm going to look at the Virgo constellation. And when we look up in the sky, we can see the Virgo constellation. And for some reason, one day somebody said, oh, that looks like a woman. And I don't know. Well, it has nothing to do with anything, but I don't think it looks like a woman. And if we were to look at these stars, there's a bunch of stars in this photo, and one of these stars is named M58. And if we were to travel at the speed of light for 68 million years, we would arrive at M58 and realize that star is not a star. Let's look at what M58 looks like. That's M58. That's one of the stars that makes up the Virgo constellation. Now, it is... Um, 116,000 light years across. It is home to 400 billion stars. And from Earth, from where we are, it looks like one twinkling star. 
just to the right of Virgo, there's another star that's really famous because it just looks so cool. We'd actually only have to travel 30 million years at the speed of light to get to this one. Let's go to the next photo. This is a Sombrero galaxy, and I'm not sure if you are aware of this or not, but Sombrero is Spanish for hat. I've been spending a lot of time with Eduardo, and he's help, helping me with my Espanol. And so this is the hat, the hat galaxy, everyone. The hat galaxy is relatively small. It is only 50,000 light years across, which is just a third the size of our galaxy, of the Milky Way. But this is just to get to Virgo. We traveled a long way. What if we just wanted to do like a short day trip? So if you traveled 6,500 light years, that's it, that's it, we can do that. Star Trek, that's like warp three. If you travel 6,500 light years, you would get to something so grand, the Grand Canyon looks like a little puddle. So great, the Great Barrier Reef, it looks like the coral that you skinned your knee on when you were snorkeling in Hawaii. This is so great. 6,500 light years away to see this. These are the pillars of creation. That's what the photo is called. And what the pillars of creation are, they're in the Eagle Nebula. And there is gas and there is dust. And they're colliding and creating new stars. So God created the pillar of creation to keep on creating. That is so cool. And I forget how many light years across these um, pillars are, but they're um, tens of thousands of light years across all creating new stars. But here's my favorite part. The Hubble telescope. And if you don't know what the Hubble telescope is, you should because you paid for it. The Hubble telescope, let's go to the next one. Um, when it hit this spot on Earth, every single day for four months, it took a photo into a part of our sky where we see nothing. And if you go to the next slide, you can see which part of the sky that is. Go to the next slide, please. Okay, so just to the left of the moon, if we're looking at the moon, the Hubble telescope every night for four months straight took the same picture of this same tiny part of our sky. And some of you might have seen this photo before. It's amazing. But what it showed us in this black square was absolutely amazing. Let's go to the next picture. It showed us tens of thousands of galaxies, and I wish our projector was about 300 times bigger, because in this one square of our night sky where we don't see any stars, we learn that there are 10,000 galaxies. Now, here's the coolest part. Because light takes so long to get to the Earth relative to how far these galaxies are, these galaxies might not even exist anymore. We could be looking in the past, but in this one tiny square there are 10,000 galaxies. And so I just want to do some simple math. It's just multiplication. I can do that. If, if there are 10,000 galaxies in this one tiny square, and we multiply that by 400 billion, which is how many stars might be in each of those galaxies, there is so much less fewer stars in this picture than there are atoms in a milliliter of water. That will blows my mind. But here's the coolest part. Like I said, God created the pillars of creation to keep on creating. God created galaxies and stars. God created the sombrero galaxy. That means hat. 
he created all of these things, but none of them make him as happy as when he looks at us. This is crazy. One of my favorite books of all time is William Paul Young's The Shack. And if you haven't read The Shack, The Shack's main character, Mac, he gets to have kind of a weekend retreat with God. And, and he's dealing with some really bad stuff. And, and he's having a breakdown before God. And he says, this, he says, God, why does evil exist? Why has this evil happened to my family? And then God says this, You and this creation are incredible. Whether or not you understand that or not, you are wonderful beyond imagination. Just because you make horrendous and destructive choices does not mean you deserve less respect for what you inherently are, the pinnacle of my creation and the center of my perfection. The pinnacle of all creation, the highest point of all existence is not the pillars of creation. It's not stars so far away we can't even see them. When God looks at all creation, he is most pleased by humanity. This week we're continuing our series called The Core. And in The Core, we're looking at the core beliefs of what Christianity believes. And this week we're, we're talking about humanity, that all of this amazing stuff exists. So, so where is our place in the universe? Um, the question we're asking is really simple. How does God see us? And this is the answer. When God looks at us, when God looks at you, he sees the crowning achievement of all creation. Psalm 8 put it like this. I love Psalm 8. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. Look at how Eugene Peterson wrote it. I look up at your macro skies, dark and enormous, and handmade sky jewelry, moon and stars mounted in their settings. Then I look at my micro self and wonder, why do you bother with us? Why take a second look our way? Yet we've so narrowly missed being gods, bright with Eden's dawn's light. David, he could have been looking at Virgo when he wrote this psalm. He sees the stars, and he doesn't even know that these stars are actually galaxies. And he looks at how beautiful they are. And his only thought is, God, why bother with us? Such a great question, but it's actually already answered in the Bible. If David had just looked at Genesis 1, he would have got the answer. Genesis 1.26 says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God also created atoms and molecules. God created milliliters and milliliters and gallons of water. God created planets, solar systems, galaxies, and the universe. But only one thing reflects the image of God, and it's us. It's 
humanity. God is more pleased when he looks at us than when he looks at anything else in the universe. That's why, to answer David, that's why God is mindful of us, because we are the pinnacle of God's creation and the center of his affection. What I want you guys to do right now, we're going to get interactive. You can do one of two things. You can either Facebook this quote, or if you don't want to Facebook because you're in church and you really, you're, you're Facebooking right now. If you want to, I, I want you to just turn to a person next to you and say that. I think we've got it up on the screen. We are the pinnacle of God's creation and the center of his affection. Say that to the person next to you right now. Go. If Laura can get a hallelujah, maybe we can get a hallelujah for that. Okay, I got one. Thank you. The other day, Laura, Lila was like, wow, so many people enjoyed your sermon. They Facebooked your quote. And I said, that's because I told them to. She's like, oh, that's not really nearly as impressive. So Psalm 8 and Genesis 1, they don't stop there. They actually go further. They say, we reflect God. But they don't stop there because they say we reflect God. But then they say what we are to do. Why do we reflect God? Why do we even exist? Genesis 1 and Psalm 8, they go further. Psalm 8 says this. You have made them, you have made humanity rulers over the works of your hand. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and all that swims the paths of the sea. The Bible says that God created us to rule over those things. Genesis 1 continues with the exact same idea. God blessed them. God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, Everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God created man to bear his image, to look like him, to reflect who he is. Then God gave the earth as our workplace. God gave us the earth. He gave us a gift. He said, hey, here is this. Rule over the earth just like I rule over all creation. The earth, it's our gift from God. But we don't usually see it like that. So here's the main point for today. God created man in his own image for one purpose, to dwell with him while taking care of creation. The earth is our gift from God, but we don't always treat it like a gift from God. Instead, it's really tempting, it's really, it's really easy to treat the earth like a battery. We just use it and we use it and we use it till it's gone because God's going to blow it up anyway, right? Or we treat it like our, like, our, like our housing project, that we just got this thing, we don't really need to take care of it because it's not ours. And, um, you know, it's really easy to believe that, that this is our temporary housing project. But if you were to believe that, you're ignoring what Genesis 1 says, you're ignoring what Psalm 8 says. If you think that this is our temporary housing project to just use and use till we blow it up, you're ignoring what the Bible says. God created the earth, and he said, this is good. He didn't say, that, that, that's, that's good enough. 
He didn't say that. He said the earth was good. So to treat the earth like it's ours to destroy is to ignore Scripture. And even worse, it's to misuse a gift from God. That's not what we were called to do. That's not why we were created. God created man in his own image for one purpose, to dwell with him while taking care of creation. That was the plan, but then sin entered the picture. And after sin became reality, sin changed our reality. Do we still reflect God's image? Absolutely. But because of sin, we are unable to dwell with God in the way that he originally intended. And then to make matters worse, our job of taking care of the earth, our jobs in general, they got a lot harder. When Adam and Eve are taken out of Eden, God says, here's how your life is going to be. It's easy to think, and I think that for most of my life, I thought that the result of sin is that we have to have a job and that we're going to work, and that's the result of sin. But that's not what the Bible says. Adam had a job before he ever sinned. Instead, God says, you're going to work, but this time, work is going to be hard. It's going to be painful. It's going to cause you stress, and then you're going to work, and then you're going to work, and then you're going to work, and then you're going to die. That's the result of sin. Here's what God says in Genesis. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. From dust you are, and to dust you will return. God's original plan was for Adam to take care of the earth, and it was not going to be hard because Adam's right here, God's right next to him. Adam's original job was to take care of the earth alongside God. But because of sin, that job separated us from God, and it got a lot harder. The earth was no longer easy to subdue, which was one of the only two things God told Adam to do. Look at what Ecclesiastes says. If I haven't gotten depressing enough, let's read Ecclesiastes. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and and as everyone comes so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. The curse of sin isn't that humanity now has to work. The curse of sin is that our work is hard. Our work is stressful. We were never intended for that. But because of sin, that's what happens. I get to talk to a lot of teenagers because of my position here. And a lot of times, um, they come to me with these really, really serious problems. Problems I've never had to deal with before. And a lot of it is the result of a terrible idea, which was to get a bunch of insecure and immature teenagers in the same building and telling them to act like adults. That was a bad idea. But we do that, and then we wonder, why are teens so mean to each other? Well, they're mean to each other because they're mean. And so I talk with some of the kids, even here at the church, and, and they tell me what they're dealing with, what, what's happening at school or what's happening at home. And sometimes I have nothing to say. 
And so they'll share these things with me, and I will say, I don't know if this is encouraging to you or not, but I can promise you this. What you're dealing with in school right now, that's a high school problem. And when you're out of high school, you're not going to have to deal with that anymore because people are not going to treat you like that. And then I say this encouraging statement. I say, don't worry. Life will be so much better when you get to college. And then and their eyes look up a little bit because college is awesome. I love college. That's why I went back again and, and, and again and again because it's so much fun. And, and their eyes light up and say, really, college is that great? And I say, yes. And they go, so then after I graduate from college and I'm an adult with a job, does life get even better? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because you, you work and then you give half your money to the bank for your mortgage and then you give a little bit for your car and then you buy food and then your baby needs $400 a month baby formula. Sorry, that's just us. Um, and then diapers and then, oh, and then he wants to go to college so you pay for him and then you work and then you work and then you work and then you die. So <laughs> the, the four years of college, enjoy that because it's awesome. <laughs> I need some wild, I don't know. The Bible, the encouraging word of God. We were created to enjoy work joyfully because we will be working next to God. And God gave man a job to do, and it was never supposed to cause pain. But then sin comes in, ruins all of that, and causes someone in the Bible to write, as everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain? Since they toil for the wind, nothing, nothing at all. He says it's vanity, it's, it's smoke, it's chasing after the wind. God created man in his image for one purpose, to dwell with him while taking care of the earth. But because of sin, that's no longer the case. And that's going to bring us to our core belief of the day. Sin separated humanity from God, but sin can't stop God because God is God. And that means what God wants, God gets. And when God sees us, he smiles. God wants to be with us. So he is going to find a way to allow himself to be with us. God isn't a God who's, who's looking down on us like a kid with a magnifying glass and we're the ants. God doesn't look at us from this fancy throne and, and just sit there stoically and think, I'm just going to wait till they mess up. And just wait. No, no. Here's what God does when he looks at us. He looks at us. He looks down. And, and he says, hey, hey, I know him. I know him. He looks just like his dad. I know her. She looks, come over here, come over here. She looks just like me. That's what God is like when he sees us. So if sin messed up the picture, that's not going to stop God. God's going to get what he wants. And so that's our core belief. Let's all say this together. I believe that all people are loved by God and need Jesus as their Savior. Because of sin, we cannot fulfill our original purpose. And God, he's not okay with that. God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to us so that we could regain that original purpose. And if that sounds like a memory verse, that's because it is. I want to look at what Eugene Peterson wrote because he paraphrased John 3.16 so well. I love this. This is how much God loved the world. 
He gave his son, his one and only son. And this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. A whole and lasting life, that's what humanity was created for. Weeks ago, I talked about salvation. I said, humanity, we're not destined for some mythical, magical city floating on the clouds. That's not what God created us for. When sin entered the picture, God didn't go, oh, ooh, I I didn't plan for that. I guess I'll just give up and blow everything up. That's not what God said at all. God had to plan for humanity, and sin can't stop it. And God's plan now is redemption. It's to allow us to fulfill that original purpose, to bear his image, to dwell with him, and to take care of creation. When I was 20 years old, I was put in charge of a Bible study that grew to have about 30 people, and I'm now pretty sure all 30 of those people knew a whole lot more than I did. But one Bible study, we were studying Romans, and Romans is great. It talks about sin, and it talks about righteousness and grace. And after one of the Bible studies, this woman comes up to me, and and she's really troubled. And she says, Patrick, what are we going to do in heaven? And I answered so fast because I didn't actually have any scripture in my head. I just had a bunch of traditions, and I had a really cool answer. And so I said, two weeks ago, I was at an amphitheater. It's called the Gorge. There was a river down at the bottom, and there were 30,000 of us. You know the Gorge? Yeah. There are 30,000 of us, and we were singing worship songs to God for 14 hours a day. I said, heaven's going to be like that, except we're not going to have to sleep. I'll never forget what happens next. She looks at me, and she starts to cry. She says, Patrick, I don't really like music. I don't really like singing. And I don't really like worship music. I feel uncomfortable at concerts. I don't even know if I want to go to heaven. And here is my error. Humanity, we're not created for a nonstop worship concert. We're, we're not created for some mystical concert on the clouds. That's not why God created us. If you want to know why humanity exists, what we're going to be like someday, God's already told us, and it's in Genesis. We're going to bear his image. We're going to dwell with him. We're going to take care of the earth. The purpose that God created us for thousands and thousands of years ago, the purpose for humanity is also our ultimate destiny at the very end. When, that, when this life is over, those who follow Jesus, they will fulfill that original purpose. And everything will be restored, both humanity and creation. Revelation shows this. In, in, in Revelation 21 and 22, we see something that is so similar to Genesis 1. Humanity, again, it bears God's image. Humanity, again, dwells in perfect relationship with God. Revelation 21 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, let's actually read this next part together. Look, 
God's dwelling place. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has, been pa- has passed away. Go to the next slide. This is where it comes together. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. The original purpose is also our future destiny. This isn't metaphor in Revelation. This isn't mystery. We really were created to bear God's image. We were created to dwell with him. We were created to rule over the earth like he rules over all creation. And the great news is this. Through Jesus, that's exactly what we get to do. If you want to look at the purpose and the future of humanity, all you need to do is look at the beginning. When God sees us, he sees himself. And when he sees us, when he sees himself in us, he is smiling. The pinnacle of my creation and the center of my affection. And one day, through the resurrection, when God makes everything new, everything will be as it was originally intended. We, all of us, will be perfect creatures because we reflect the image of a perfect God. We'll dwell with our creator because he created us to be with him. And we will do what we were created to do. We'll take care of creation alongside our father. That is why we were created. And that is our destiny. Let's all stand up. This ended on a high point. But I know that sometimes we don't feel like we're going to achieve our purpose. Sometimes we know that through Jesus we've been saved, but we feel like we are not the new creation that Jesus died for. And one of the great things about being a part of a church family is that you can get support. So right now the shepherds are going to come to the front. And if you need a time to pray with somebody, this is the time to pray with somebody. And we can pray that just as Jesus was raised from the dead, that our lives will be new as well. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you that sin ruins absolutely nothing. What you wanted thousands of years ago is what you're going to get. And we thank you that that is all possible through Jesus. Right now, I pray for the people here who they don't feel new. They don't feel like a new creation, but they feel like they need you, God. I pray that we can support them. I pray that we can encourage them, that we can build them up because that's what the body of Christ does. God, I thank you for everybody here, and I pray this in your name. Amen.